Hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today's episode features Mike Newman and Heather Heidenreich, who are gonna be reviewing the questions and answers from our structural systems mock exam. Now the questions uh, that Mike and Heather will review will help to give you a strategy for how to study for this exam um, and give you some insight into the, the terms and topics and formulas that you're gonna see in this exam. Um, and if you haven't already done so, make sure to download the mock exam, which you can find uh, a link uh, to that in the show notes. Before we get started, if you'd like to attend our next ARE Live broadcast, visit blackspectacles.com podcast to register. Uh, during that broadcast, you'll have a chance to ask questions and share your answers uh, with Mike and the group. Uh, and if you don't know Mike Newman, he's an adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio, and he's the instructor for Black Spectacles online AIA ARE prep curriculum. Uh, Heather Eidenreich, uh, is a structural engineer at the Chicago office of KJWW, which is an international engineering consulting firm with expertise in designing sustainable and high-performance building infrastructure systems. Finally, if you haven't already checked out our AIA ARE prep curriculum, head over to blackspectacles.com to watch any of our free tutorials from the courses. And of course, today we have a special Black Spectacles promo code to share, so make sure you stick around until the end of the episode. But first, we'll hand it over to Mike and Heather. Okay. Well, uh, as Mark said, welcome. Um, one of the first things to say about uh, working on any of the structure's problems, this is the thing that I just want to make sure we hammer home right off the bat, which is don't fret about it. It's all going to be just fine. One of the things that happens is that uh, architects tend to sort of their eyes glaze over and they start getting panicky and uh, they start thinking that, oh my gosh, this is going to be something I can't handle because it's calculations. But in fact, most of the exam is actually about concepts. It's about basic understanding of sort of rules. Uh, we're going to go through a couple different types of um, problems. We're going we're gonna to do some more concept-based ones and then a few uh, calculation-based ones. But you should know that the calculation-based ones, uh, even those, the, the formulas generally will be given to you in some form. What you're really looking for is kind of a general understanding that you can recognize the formulas, be able to plug the information in. But also, sometimes you don't even need to do the calculations. It's really just about kind of a basic, clear understanding of kind of what's going on. And one of the things that I always like to say about this is this is stuff that you actually know already. The hard part about it is that you have to translate it into sort of engineer speak. You have to translate it into sort of the structures world of how, how things are talked about. So as we're going along, Heather will, uh, being the structural engineer that she is, she will talk uh, uh, in kind of engineer speak. And when it feels right, I'll try to help translate that back and forth. But but in general, that's the kind of way you should be thinking about this. This is the the that it's not anything that's outside of your basic understanding. It's really just trying to find the right language to be able to uh, talk about it and, and therefore to know what steps to take, what to do next. Because that's always the big question. So uh, let's just sort of dive right in and uh, we will start off um, right off the bat. You'll notice that we gave you a few uh, uh, helpful hints along the way. We gave you some formulas. Uh, that's the kind of thing that would show up on the front of the exam. Uh, and we also, in the middle of some of the questions that we had uh, passed out to, uh, sent out to everybody before we started, uh, we have some charts and things because you can use those along the way. So these are some of the formulas that we might uh, come reference back to. But uh, let's, uh, let's start in with the first one. So on our first one, the question is, where in the beam shown is the moment the highest? So Heather, 
Great. So you can use intuition a little bit on this particular problem because you, as you can see by the dimensions of where the loads are located, that everything is symmetric about the beam. So by intuition, you can figure out what the reactions on each end are, and they are going to equal three kips apiece because I just took the six kips total that are applied to that beam and divided it in half because of everything being symmetric. Now, if you feel comfortable and you can go intuition-wise and keep going that way, you will ultimately come to the answer that the moment is highest right here at mid-span. But for those of you that don't feel comfortable doing that way and want to do a little bit of the math behind it, we're going to show you how you can get there. So the the thing that'll get us there is we're going to draw the shear diagram here for this beam where I've always been curious why you use V for shear, but you know, that's one of those engineer speak things. <laughs> so we're going to start by doing a shear diagram and you're going to go up, you're going to follow your loads. So we're going to go up three kips and because we don't have any load applied, we're going to go straight across and then we're going to come down two kips by my hand that does this. So we're going to come down two kips and then we're going to go across again till we hit that next load and we're going to come down two kips which takes us across the zero line and puts us at minus one and then we are going to go straight across and then down two kips straight across and then close it up with that last three kips. Now the one thing to know about your shear diagrams is whenever that shear diagram crosses zero, so this point right here, whenever that happens, that is your maximum moment. So when, when that uh, shear diagram crossed the zero line, that we essentially have just answered the actual question right there. Like yeah. it's, and it happens because this one is symmetrically loaded. It happens to be right in the middle. Mm -hmm. And you could have guessed that beforehand if you'd sort of been thinking about it. But this is sort of a clear, definite, clear description of why that's the case. Correct. Yep. So if we move on to the next question. Well, what, let's, why don't we what go do ahead and do? let's draw the, the, moment, the moment diagram. diagram? OK, so let's do that. So just for fun. Because exactly. what could be more fun than drawing a moment diagram? <laughs> so yes, we are going to draw that moment diagram and you need to know a couple of different things that I'll describe along the way. The first is to figure out what number you're going to go up to. We're going to do the area underneath this shear diagram. So we basically have a 3. We went up 3, so this value here is 3. And you're going to do the area of it. So it's 3 times 3, so it's 9. And whenever you have a straight across, so a box shape, in your shear diagram, you're going to get a diagonal line in your moment diagram. So we're going to go up to 9, and then you're going to keep doing your math where you have this is 1, and it's 6 feet long. So we're going to go up another 6 to the center. So we come up to 15. So you were kind of doing those in those, you're just kind of separating those out into different boxes. So the yes. first one was mm -hmm. the 3 uh, kip uh, amount by the first 3 feet, and then you jump to the next box, which was 6 feet long, but only 1 kip high. Right. And so you're kind of just adding it yep. up as you go along. Yep. And then because we crossed the zero line, these are all negative, so we're basically going to come down those same numbers. So you're going to come down a total of 6 to, to the plus 9, and then you're going to come down the rest of the way down to 0. So that that just to be clear, that line probably shouldn't have been so straight looking, yes. but uh, there you go. And one of the ways to think about this um, that I find useful, not everybody finds useful. So if this confuses you, just forget about it. Um, but that the slope of the line 
on the moment diagram is equal to the value of uh, the shear diagram at that moment. So if you think about that, uh, in that uh, shear diagram up there, that first three feet, you have a value there, and it, there's a specific slope, and that's going to be a you know relatively steep slope. And then in that second box that we talked about for that next six feet, it's a lower number on the shear diagram, and so it's a lower slope. Uh, and this will become sort of more useful when you look at the next example, but this is one of those things where you start seeing there's this direct set of relationships, and you can do a whole series of calculations. We could have done this through mm -hmm. sums of uh, vertical okay. and, and moment yeah. diagram, moment uh, um, sums. Um, but in fact, you, you can actually do this fairly quickly in your just by kind of graphically kind of playing mm -hmm. it out. Correct. Yep. Uh, why don't we go to the next one? So this is another one, very similar question, but this one's a little more complicated. Yep. So um, intuition is the only only going to get me so far in this one because it's not symmetric, and I have two different load types. I've got a distributed load, and then I've got this concentrated load over here. So I need to figure out what my reactions are first to even attempt figuring out what my shear diagram is going to look like to figure out where my maximum moment is. So. The way I like to do it is I'm going to sum about this left-hand side right here. And to do that, we're going to basically be summing a moment about that point. So to do that, we are going to look at the different direction the loads are going. So we are going to start out with the 1.5, and it is acting over 12 feet. And then you want to look at it and say, what's its moment arm? So its arm here basically is half of the distance it acts over. So it is another 12 over a half. So it's 6 feet. So the first 1.5 times 12 is actually the total load that you're talking about. Correct. So the 12 foot is because it's 1.5 kips per foot. In order to know what that total load of that particular one, you have to multiply it by the 12 feet. But then the moment arm is the half of that distance. Mm -hmm. Correct. And so keep going with the next set of loads. So the, the 1.5 kip per foot is going to act in the same direction as that 4 kip load. And it is acting 15 feet away from this left end. And when we do this, all of this has to sum up to zero because otherwise we don't have a static beam here. You don't want your beam galloping down the road. <laughs> yes, flipping around. Yeah. The... So I'm going to call this other end here B just to give us a value, but it is acting in the opposite direction that the other two loads are. So it's going to have a minus sign and it is acting at, let's see, that's 6 and 12, that's 18 feet. And when you solve for B, it actually comes up to 9.33 kips. And then you can sum your forces in the vertical by saying, this 4 kips plus the 1.5 times 12 to get it to a total load, um, and then subtracting off the 9.33 gets you to the reaction over here, which is 12.67. So when we draw our shear diagram here, we're going to start doing it the same way we did the other. So we're going to go straight up because we've got that 12.67 uh, kip reaction. But we have a distributed load, so you got to treat that a little differently because every foot you're taking off more load. It's not like this concentrated load where it happens all at once. So because it's a distributed load, it actually is going to have, and I'm just going to draw some guidelines in here for myself because that's how I do things. Um, so because of that, we're going to have this diagonal line that continually changes value 
every foot as you go because you're going to subtract off that 1.5 kip every foot of the, the length of um, that 12 foot area that it acts across. So once you hit that, we see that there is no load then between the end of the distributed load and the concentrated load. But then you hit the concentrated load and it goes down a little bit more and then goes straight across and comes back up. So now we have seen that here's our point of maximum moment because that's where it crosses zero. But we have to figure out what it is. And so there's a couple of different ways you can do it. I like to use similar triangles just because it's graphic for me and that's what I like to do. So I have one triangle that I know it's 12.67 over some unknown value. But then my other triangle has to be the whole thing where it's the total of 12 feet down here, but then it's 12.67 plus the 5.33. I've done a little extra math for you here. But it's the sum of that, and then when you solve, you can basically then do your ratios and solve for x, and you get a value of x, which is 8.45 feet. That's how far away from this left end that point of zero shear is. So that tells us our basic question, which was, where is the highest uh, amount of moment? Correct. And we figured that out through a combination of using the shear diagram, understanding kind of what the shear diagram was telling us, and then doing a kind of a quick version of what uh, uh, kind of a fast graphic version of, of uh, helping us understand where exactly that, that point of crossing is. But we also could have done a moment diagram, we could, could have, have done a mm -hmm. sum of moments and then figured out distances. Like there's a, there's a series of other things we could, we could start to figure Correct. out as well. Yeah, I guess the one thing that this helps you is, yes, you could have drawn that moment diagram, but if you're feeling crunched and, and frantic because of time, don't feel like you have to do that by knowing that your point of zero shear is your maximum moment, exactly. you've saved yourself some time. But just because we're narcissists like this, let's go <laughs> ahead uh, um, right. and uh, show that just to have a moment to discuss mm -hmm. what these things look like. Yep, so now again we have to think about that the point of moment is based on the area underneath this. So, and I haven't done this math, so I'm not gonna really put values down, but I'm gonna draw what the diagram looks like. Yeah, so this so, is just sort of approximate. Mm -hmm, yep, so basically because we have now a sloped line in our shear diagram, the line in the moment diagram needs to be a curve. So it's gonna come up here and it's gonna peak basically right there. And we happen to know that because we've already figured that mm -hmm. out. Yep. So then it's going to start coming back down on a curve. Oop. <laughs> a Bad curve. Bad curve, but a uh, curve. Okay. Yep. So, but then when you hit this point where this, the diagonal stops, you've hit basically a constant slope line. So now you're going to get a straight line. So a diagonal straight line, yep. just like the previous one that we were doing. Correct. Get one of those, and then you're going to get an even sharper one. It's difficult to tell from my very quick drawing. <laughs> yeah, <but> so <laughs> not the greatest drawing on there, but mm -hmm. there you go. Uh, so, uh, and once again, uh, the version that I was talking about, again, just find the, the system that, that you feel comfortable and how to think about these things. Um, but if you think of it as that the value of the shear diagram uh, is telling you what's going on in the moment diagram, 
as that sloping line goes, the value is dropping at every point. And you can see that the curve, that's the, the slope is changing and becoming closer and closer to zero until it gets to that maximum point. So same kind of thing. So whatever system you find that, that helps you kind of see these things or, or be able to just think of them graphically, that's, uh, that's what you're looking for. So, okay, we asked uh, people to send in some examples. Um, and so I'm going to jump over to uh, an example answer, and we'll see how this one's from Spencer, and we'll see how uh, how Spencer did. Okay, so uh, on the first one, um, looks like uh, Spencer got that uh, the first one pretty uh, pretty spot on. Spot on. And in fact, his drawing looks a little better than ours. Um, so there you go. And uh, let me try taking a look at the. Uh, Next one. Oop. Sorry. Okay, here's the uh, the next one. And so we got the reactions right. And I mean he didn't draw the shear diagram, but it looks like I mean looks, he got the end value, so it looks Yep, it looks all looks good pretty good. Uh, so you can see all the uh, calculations there and he's uh, summing all the forces. And again, this is one of those things. You don't necessarily need to do the moment diagram in order to understand where the maximum moment is as long as you understand the relationship between the moment diagram and the shear diagram, mm -hmm. which obviously is also related to the loading diagram. Mm -hmm. um, okay, way to go, Spencer. All right, let's go back to uh, the things here. All right, and going on to problem number two. Okay, so problem number two, uh, you were working on a hospital in Japan in an area of high seismic risk. At a preliminary design review, there are various concepts being considered. Which is the most sensible approach? So, okay, Heather, uh, we've got a couple different things. We've got an eight-story L-shaped building. We've got a six-story symmetrical plus-shaped building. We've got a square building. And then we've got the rather restrictive, you should not build a hospital in a seismic zone. Uh, what do you say about the L-shaped building? Well, the L-shaped building could work. It has a one piece to it that we don't like as much as the rest, and that is this little inside corner here. Uh, I think that if you imagine grabbing this end here and grabbing this end here and wanting to move them back and forth, you'll see that this spot right here just kind of wants to rip apart right through there. And so that not that you can't build this way, but it wouldn't be my favorite choice. And you'd have to put a lot of extra structure yep, in there in exactly. order to do that. So you're, what you're essentially saying is that each of those wings is going, going to start shaking on its own, mm -hmm. and they're going to kind of crunch into each yeah, other so at if, that inside corner. If you corner. really like this choice, I would probably say that I want to build it this way, where you see a joint between the two. And so they can kind of they have a way to move separately yep. and not hurt each other. Exactly. Uh, how about the plus? Well, the plus is going to be obviously the same thing, just yeah. four times, right? Yeah, exactly. The plus has a lot of what, and basically what we call these inside corners are re-entrant corners. And um, from some of the handout material that you sent out, there are some code tables that were pulled up together. And so it, it's kind of one of those things that we have to design around and make the structure more robust. So we're spending more money on structure instead of all the pretty architecture. And that's what we like, pretty architecture. Um, yeah, so if you look in the uh, the problem set handout, there's a there's a couple of uh, sheets in there that give a little bit more information about re-entering corners and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so obviously, we're coming down to it. C is clearly the answer. You're talking about a square-shaped building. 
And the reason for that is just because it's all going to move as one. Yeah, and it's symmetric, so we love symmetry. Um, for seismic issues. Yep, yep. So it, it allows us to be, uh, you know, ideally we'd want to put something on each of the outside edges. So it allows us to be uh, centered, if you will, about the, where the mass of the building is going to work. And that's usually about pretty close to the center of a square. So yeah, our choice would be the square. And one of the things you'll find is that often on the exam, there'll be things that will say something like, you should not build this or do that. And uh, those are not usually sort of logical answers. They may seem logical at different points, but um, you can always do it. It's just a matter, as Heather was saying, like, where do you want to spend the money? And since the exam is often about the idea of efficiency, this is sort of a good example of uh, just like that's the D is just not a reasonable answer in this context. All right, let's move on to the next one. So these are the code tables we were mentioning. Right, so these are in your, your handout. There's a couple different code tables that you can, you can look at. So here's uh, question number three. So question number three is, the contractor is about to place the concrete for a complicated but important structural wall, but something seems a bit off and you are worried. Which concrete test would you look at first for reassurance? And then we have a couple different answers. We have a uh, hydration test, core test, slump cone test, cylinder tests, and penetration test. So the key thing here when you're reading this question is that time seems of the essence, that there's something's wrong and you, before things get too set in place, you want to like, is some, do things, are things going reasonably correct? So a couple things we can do right off the bat is we can get rid of a few of these choices. So one that we can get rid of is A, because hydration test, I just made up. Uh, so that's that's not a real thing. Uh, maybe it's a real thing. I don't know. Uh, maybe it is. Around, but I, I made it up either way. Um, uh, and then core test and penetration test, those are things that you would do down the road. Yeah, uh, like the core test would be something you do on an existing structure to figure out what your strength of concrete might be. Right. That'd be like one way to do it. There was something that was going wrong and you wanted it to to test it out, or maybe it's an existing building and you're trying to see, can you add more load to mm -hmm. it or something? Right. So the core test is a, is a real thing, but it's just not something you would do in the in the way that the question was described. And uh, I think the penetration test is sort of a similar thing. So the, really the, the two that are the, the sort of main ones that you're likely to be asked about would be the slump cone test and the cylinder test. And the slump, cone, slump cone test is where you just have this sort of uh, cone-shaped uh, formwork piece and it's about 12 inches tall and you put a bunch of, of the concrete from a particular uh, truckload that's coming in, it's about to go into place. And then you flip the cone over and you lift the, the, the cone off and you just sort of see how much does it slump down? So if it had a big slump and it like puddled, let's say it slumped down 10 inches or something, that means it's probably way too watery. And it, it's, uh, it's gonna have cracking problems. It's mm -hmm. gonna have um, uh, sort of the, the capacity is gonna be lowered. Or let's say it didn't slump at all. Let's say you're on a job site uh, and it had a zero slump. Well, the problem with that's going to be it's going to be hard to get any of that like in and around the rebar. It's right. going to be hard to get it uh, to you know between the rebar and the formwork. Or if you have a complicated uh, uh, formwork setup, which this question specifically says, a zero slump would be very very difficult in that situation. There are places where zero slump is quite useful and happens all the time, for example, in precast, where you have a lot more control over how it's being placed. But this is an on-site uh, on uh, kind of question. So the slump seems like it's telling us quite a bit and it's telling it to us right away. So that's one possible answer. How about the cylinder test? 
So on well, the cylinder test, what happens? Yeah, so these are um, little, a lot of times they're plastic cylinders that they'll just scoop some of the concrete out as you're pouring it into these. And they're supposed to let them cure on site so that they match what the concrete is out in the actual form. Um, but these are usually broken at 7 and 28 days. So if you're going to know anything, you're going to have to wait for 7 and 28 days. So if you're needing immediate answers, the cylinder test isn't going to give them to you. Yeah, because they're they're trying to. I mean, what happens with most cylinders that get done on a on a job site is they get put. Uh, they're supposed to cure in the same place um, so that you get the same climatic conditions, uh, but eventually they just get put into a basement somewhere and labeled. And you know, a year later, somebody throws them out. Um, actually, probably nobody throws them out because they're big and heavy. And like, why would you want to do that? Uh, and so they just sit there forever. Um, so they're they're not really used. But they are very useful if something has gone wrong and you're going back to check, like, wait a minute, so there seems like there's a problem, therefore let's check uh, the trucks five through seven that, that had their load that went to this one wall and you can go back, find the label, and then you literally smash them and that gives you an opportunity to check that, uh, like what kind, of, uh, what kind of pressure it took to smash that and therefore you know what happened. Well, that's great. But that's, as Heather says, that's, that's 28 days later, mm -hmm. maybe seven days later. Like you might do an early test because you can get a pretty good sense of it, but it's probably way later. So the way the question was worded, it's talking about, I'm worried. I, I want to find out what's going on. Uh, the slump test is definitely a more useful, useful one for you in that context. And I can guarantee you there'll be questions about slump tests and cylinder tests somewhere. I'm not sure how it'll be worded, but there'll be something because it's kind of a key one. Right. How did Spencer do? Let's take a look and see what uh, what happened with Spencer. I'm going to have to bump forward a couple here, but let's see how it goes. So let's see. You got the square building and Spencer got it right. Got it right. Yes. All right. You're doing great, Spence. All right. So let's uh, jump on to question number four. So question number four, uh, this one's going to take a little bit of calculation. Question number four, the framing plan shown is for a two-story simple light manufacturing building. If the loads are as follows, axial loads only, uh, live load of the second floor is 80 uh, PSF, dead load of the second floor is 20 PSF, live load of the, of the roof is 30 PSF, dead load of the roof is, again, 20 PSF, and then we're going to ignore that first floor slab on grade uh, just because it's sort of being held up by the... By the uh, ground below. Uh, so we have two basic questions here. The first one is, what is the total load uh, of the column that's been indicated? So what's the first thing we need to figure out? Well, the first thing that you need to know is that there are all these loads. So we're going to add those up in just a moment. But the big thing to understand is what, how, how does the load even get to the column? So the big key word is tributary area here. Tributary area. Yep. Yeah, it's a key word. It'll show up somewhere. Yeah. So basically, we are going to have half of the bay in each direction. And I'm just going to draw a square here for you. That this is basically the trib area that that column is going to see. So basically, half of the 25-foot bay in each direction and half of the 30-foot bay in each direction is going to contribute to the load that goes down that column. So we know that the area, I'm just going to keep it easy for you, is the 25 and the 30, and we're going to multiply it by our load, and I'm going to do some addition in my head. So 80 and 20, that's 100, and another 50, so that's 150. 
So you could do this where you actually did the second floor load and then did another one for the roof load and then you added them together. Uh, what Heather's doing is just sort of putting it all into one yeah. uh, one thing and Since saying – just so wanted the load at the bottom, I it's, so did it's, a little shortcut. If you add them all up and multiply that by the area, that's going to be the 100, 150 yep. PSF. So right now, if you notice though, uh, you want your answer in kips and right now all my units are in pounds. So you will have to divide uh, – for those that – maybe aren't as aware you have a thousand pounds in one kip so we will have to divide this whole thing by a thousand but our final answer here is 112.5 kips is what comes down that column and this is one of those things that you have to definitely be uh, watchful for because while they're not generally trying to go out of their way to confuse you or or be mean about it um, there often are answers that if you didn't notice the word kip uh, in that, that there would be a version that would be very close in pounds. And so it's kind of, you know, taunting you to choose the pounds one, even though it says kips. You have to be really careful about uh, matching kips and pounds, matching feet and inches, matching, uh, you know, all of those kinds of issues show up all the time yeah, on this. Units, so units like are a huge deal. Um, so. Uh, so the answer is uh, – the first part of the answer is 112.5 kips, but then that leads us to the second question, which is if the soil below that column is capable, capable of 4,000 PSF, what is the size of the footing? So that means uh, the 4,000 PSF is re referring to the soil capacity. Right. Like, like uh, if you put a load on that's more than 4,000 pounds per square foot, presumably it would start to uh, settle or, or some problem would start to happen. So uh, how can we make sure we're being safe? What kind of uh, area do we need to have, be able to handle that, right. uh, that load? So when you're figuring out the area of anything and you have a pressure, so – we basically know that a pressure equals a force over an area. So we know P and we know that pressure and we're going to search for A. So by rearranging this equation, we're going to take the load and divide it by the pressure. So I wrote out the load up here in pounds so that you can see what we're going to get for an answer up here. And I wrote out the units longhand so that you can see how when we do the the math that you're going to get an answer in feet squared when you do this math it ends up being 28.1 square feet so there's an interesting question now our answers are uh, four times seven feet four feet times seven feet which is 28 square feet mm -hmm. that's pretty darn close but there's two problems with that uh problem number one is well, it's 28. It's not 28.1. So you actually are a little bit less than right. what the requirement was. What's the other problem with uh, 4 times 7? Well, it's rectangular, which you can do. Um, actually, there you, might be a reason why you would have mm -hmm. to do it. But since it doesn't tell us anything about like we're up against the property line or right. something, like why would you want to do that, right? Nope. So the the fact that it's not symmetrical, it's going to be you you it would be harder to get the rebar in there to figure out how to make that work to spread yep. it out. It's, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, but the 29C, 29 square feet, that sure looks pretty good because that's just bigger than the 28.1. So that's really the answer. Mm -hmm. Uh, some folks may have seen a different, uh, different possible answer. So tell you what, let's take a look at, uh, what our submitted one said. Yeah, let's see what they liked. If I can get this to work. <laughs> oh, there you go. It's all Heather's problem. All right, here we go. 
So uh, on this answer, they chose six by six, which is an interesting answer because like that's often on the exam, there will be more than one correct answer. And in my mind, I think the six by six is a correct answer. It's just not as correct as the 29 square feet answer. And the reason I would say that is that, you know, anybody who's actually done concrete work knows that, you know, if you start giving people an answer like, yeah, the footing should be, uh, you know, five foot two and five eighths yeah, inches. Yeah, they don't build to that. They just don't build to that. It's just not how concrete works. Uh, and so generally you're going to round up and you're going to round up to maybe a six inch line mm -hmm. or maybe a foot line, something like that. Um, maybe, you know, if you're being a little more tight and controlled, maybe it's to every two inches or something. But like a six inch thing would be sort of uh, fairly typical. Um, so I could imagine that if uh, if our answer is really 28.1 square feet and then you start thinking, well, how big is that? And like if we did uh, five by five, is that big enough? Well, no, that's 25 square feet. So right. it's not five by five. It's the next one. It's six by six. So it's a reasonable answer, but it's just a little too wasteful in the context of the exam. If it had said five foot six by five foot six, then I'd, it'd be a, a closer mm -hmm. bet. And right. I think that might be a reasonable answer. I think the six by six is just a little too far off. But you can see uh, why uh, why they answered it this way. Yep. And, you know, looking at D as an answer, you could, it's the math. It just has oh, a right. unit issue. In it's it, just, so. a, just a unit issue, mm -hmm. right? Because that's, yep. uh, yeah, exactly. So that's, that's one there to just to taunt you to do it wrong. All right. Let's uh, go on to the next one. Okay, so this is uh, on number five. Uh, you're doing. You're in the middle of the SD uh, part of the, the schematic design part of the of the set, um, and the architect realizes that the zoning height limitations may be a problem, and therefore must get a reasonably accurate typical floor to floor height uh, for the design on the on a mid rise office building, uh, presuming a one kip per foot loading, uh, and that the beams are twenty feet long. Uh, and you are likely to use a, a 50 steel, what wide flange would you use? So, okay, there's a couple of things. For one, we have to do some quick calculations. We do, yes. And then beyond that, we're going to have to do some other stuff as yes, well. Yes, we are. So let, let's just dive right on in. So one of the equations that you're going to need to know is moment for a simple span beam with a uniform load. And you've hopefully come across this once in your lifetime, but it's WL squared over eight is the moment equation. And like I said, most of the time the formulas will be given to you and you don't really need to worry too much about it. Like you can actually find them, but there are going to be some that are probably worth just memorizing, mm -hmm. just, just to have it in the back of your head. And this would be one of those ones because yeah. it just shows up enough and you know, why make it more complicated? Mm -hmm. So now we're going to just do the math and we have this happening. And you end up getting, I believe it's 50, if my notes read correctly. Yep, so we have a moment of 50 kip feet. Um, and we have some critical information that before we flip to the next page, which will help us pick our beam size, uh, it tells us we're going to use A50 steel. So it's 50 KSI steel. And it also says that we're fully braced laterally, which means that uh, you don't have to worry about not choosing a the best beam that you possibly could because it's nicely braced. So, Which a typical beam in a situation like this yeah. would, would be. Yep. So, yeah. So if we go into the charts, uh, hopefully those of you that are 
uh, with the actual printout can look at this and read it a little easier than you might be able to on screen. But we're going to want to use, so here's where we said the, the grade of steel was a little critical to know. So if you look at this, the gray shaded section is actually where you'll see the 50 KSI steel. Um, so that's, we want to pay attention to the, the gray shades. And then I drew over top of it, but this third column right here has MR. So that's the moment that we need to find. We need to find a number that reads above 50. So on the right-hand side, you see that we max out at 47. So we're going to keep going and come down here to the, the right or um, the left-hand side. The bottom of the left-hand yeah, side. Yeah, and we see 50 right here at the bottom, and I just drew right over top of it. <laughs> um, but we do see 50 show up, so we at least know that this 8 by 21 beam will satisfy our load. But one of the things with the beam chart here is you'll notice that the beam sizes above it, uh, are some of them are lighter. So you actually, while this 8 by 21 works, it's not the most efficient shape. Um, this top one actually is an M shape, so we're just going to jump to the one right above it but we get a 12 by 19 is the lightest uh, beam that hits that 50K. So here goes the, the sort of the key thing of understanding about the wide flanges and the idea of efficiency, especially as it regards uh, the exam. Um, when you're, when you're talking about structures, you talk about efficiency, you're essentially talking about dollars. Well, how do you understand dollars in steel? It's about weight. And since the, the wide flange, uh, the first number is the nominal height, the second number is the weight per linear foot. And so if it's a higher weight per linear foot, it costs more. That's straightforward. It's, it will always be the case um, that uh, unless it is specifically asking you about height issues, um, then the choice will always be to go with the lighter weight uh, example for the wide flange. Um, you know, as long as it's not outrageously different in terms of height, but, um, but it's always about that lighter weight. Now, this is kind of a, a little counterintuitive for a lot of the architects out there, because if you start to imagine a, say, three-inch difference or something like that, um, and let's say it's a multi-story building, and so I'm now adding three inches at every floor, I could very easily have actually a very inefficient choice that way. Like, it could be in the real world that uh, maybe I'm adding... Uh, if I go with um, a, a lighter version, but it's three inches taller, uh, that I might be adding, say, 12 inches to the building or 15 inches to the building, uh, at which point I'm adding 15 inches of brick all the way around the building and 15 inches times the area of the building in terms of air conditioning and et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of reasons why I might choose to go with the heavier but shorter, uh, in terms of depth, uh, beam. But in terms of the exam, unless it specifically is asking you that, it's guaranteed that they're looking for the lighter weight beam. Mm -hmm. So the way these charts are done, and I don't know if they'll show you a chart like this, but it kind of just sort of gets you used to thinking about how, how these things work. The way these charts are done is they group them together in sort of logical groupings, mm -hmm. right? So that uh, the in each of those groupings, like that on the bottom left-hand side, there's four grouped together. Those all kind of meet roughly the same uh, uh, capacity, Correct. but some are heavier, some are lighter, and they're in order in terms of uh, sort of how you would think of them. Yep. So there you go. All right. Um, let's, uh, let's move on here. So this is just another way that we look at them in the steel manuals, just to, to let you know. It's a different version of it. Mm -hmm. And then this is about columns, which we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm.
Okay. Uh, so number six, uh, which is most likely not to have camber built in? And then our choices are composite deck, double T, open web steel, LH joists, wood glue lamb. So the first question here is what the heck is camber? Yeah, so camber is a natural crown, kind of like this picture over here shows, where the piece isn't going to come out flat. It is going to have an upward bend to it. And one of the reasons why we like that is if you think about some of your long spans, if you start out flat, it's only going to keep deflecting downward. So we'd like to start with an upward crown. That way, when you start loading, get your roofing on a big uh, stadium or something, it'll bring it down a little bit and and then you won't have you won't right, have so ponding issues when it wants to rain and right. So it starts it starts crowned upward, mm -hmm. and then by the time it actually gets real loading, it 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 loads into flat ish. Right. Um, and some are more crowned than others. It kind of depends yep. on the situation. Correct. But the the concept of camber is that idea of the crowning it up a little bit. Right. So then the question is, all right, of these, which ones? Uh, uh, are often crowned. So let's let's jump to double T for a second. What the heck is the double T? So double T is this shape over here where it's got two stems and a flange. Okay, and, and so that's a precast. That's a precast concrete. Um, and the place you'll often see these things is like you'll there'll be single T's, there'll be double T's. You'll see them in parking garages mm -hmm. and stuff like that. that. And they're pretty robust structures. I mean, they can they can span pretty far and they uh, can take a pretty big load. Um, and they uh, they're often used in these um, things where you don't mind having seams like a parking garage. And, you know, so they're they're pretty big deal. Like the, what would be a typical span of one of those things? Like I don't know. 40 feet. I've done them up to 100. Feet. Yeah. So like 60 feet is probably pretty typical. 100 feet starting to get, get pretty long, but you could certainly do it. Mm -hmm. um, and something like a precast concrete, that's totally going to have camber yeah. built into it. Yeah. Uh, Cause it's, it just, it's just begging for it. Right. Because it's going to have creep over time. Uh, it's going to, it's well, going to keep the deflecting. Whole purpose too. I mean, it, it gets tensioned in the plant. And so as you release the tension, the tendons and you cut them and cut them to a shape, when they release, they're going to pull inward. And right. so it just wants to pop that middle up. So what she's saying is that it, when they pre-stress these things, so while it's being cured, they have these these uh, steel tendons that run through it and they pull them really hard. And then when it all mm -hmm. uh, cures, it's it that's what's creating that... Uh, um, uh, that camber up. So, so, uh, definitely the double T is going to have camber. Yeah. Uh, and then let's take a look at the open web steel LH joists. Um, those are long span joists. Um, and the, the LH is what's telling us that, uh, and those are absolutely going to have camber, mm -hmm. same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, those, the, the camber is going to be built in because you're, that's for example, Heather's example of putting the roofing on something like that. You're going to, those are fairly light structures. And so in order to give them a little bit more capacity, put the camber in yep. and then when it gets that roof load on it, it's going to settle down, uh, into, uh, essentially the, the, the correct slope for the drainage of the roof. Right. Um, so then the real question is, uh, between a and D composite deck versus wood glue lamb. Uh, what do you want to say about the wood glue lamb? Well, wood glue lamb is a manufactured product, so if you wanted to put a camber into it, you certainly can. It's it's an easy material to put camber into. Because 
it's a it, you're making it up, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of the ways that you can give that wood glue lamb some that little extra boost of capacity is by building right. in that camber. And then when it does deflect, because it is wood after all, it'll deflect some. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it does deflect, it'll deflect to flat. And right. so uh, while it won't necessarily happen every time, sometimes wood glue lambs are used more decoratively than they are uh, for serious levels of, of structure. But when you talk about a glue lamb, you're generally talking about a pretty serious structure generally and it's very likely to have camber Mm -hmm. so therefore we are left once again uh here with a the composite deck so tell me about the composite deck so composite deck is the the fluted material that you're going to put on top of your actual structure which is a lot of times beams and we don't like to roll deck it's a difficult material to roll so that's why uh if you were just looking at these which of these i would ask myself which of these can i actually camber And this one pops immediately into my mind that while you could camber, it's very difficult to camber. But one of the things to be... It would be hard to to judge how much you would camber. Yeah. One of the things, though, to be not confusing in this is uh, a composite beam system typically does have camber in the beams because you are a lot of times having lighter beams. Because you're getting the benefit out of the concrete in the deck. So while it's under a wet condition, it needs a little bit of oomph to not deflect and have this big ponding situation in the concrete. So if this had said not a composite deck, but a a composite beam system, then that also could have had camber in it, but because it was just talking about the deck. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that may be a little bit of a cheat. I don't know. I I think it's a reasonable uh, response. Uh, So shall we take a look at... Should we see how Spencer did? How Spencer did. So let's see here. Uh, so this is nice the one. previous one. Mm-hmm. Let's look at this. Yep, you got composite deck. So he's he's just batting almost mm-hmm. a thousand here. Yes, so that's he's awesome. Doing quite well. All right. So let's uh, let's jump to question seven. Okay. All right. So question seven. Uh, you have a wood structure, and the engineer says that the horizontal shear stress capacity of the two by twelves is lacking, but you don't trust her. Huh. I wonder who we could be talking about. Uh, as she has been on Facebook, as she has been on Facebook during the entire conversation, you decide to check for yourself. If the highest shear stress allowable for Douglas fir larch is 180 psi, then does this loading work? And so we have a beam here. It's uh, intriguingly symmetrically loaded. I love it. So tell me about it. Okay. So we need to think about what is the shear through this beam. So the maximum shear through a beam like this is going to be at its end span. Uh, so by seeing that it's symmetric, I'm, I'm just going to use my judgment and say that it has one kip of reaction at each end of the beam. And from there, so that's, the low, that's our shear. Uh, but now we have to figure out how much shear stress we have. So that's uh, going to be an equation that... Unfortunately, in wood is a little different because of this first factor I'm going to put in front of you. But let me write out the whole thing first. So in wood, because you are dealing with a material that is looking at a horizontal shear and because your point of worst shear is actually when you go vertical through the section and you're trying to split apart those horizontal grains and so that's where this three has, uh, it is a lot of differential equations in, in converting a vertical shear into a horizontal shear. So this is just a factor you have to remember in wood, and it's specific only to wood. 
but then we're still going to do the normal load over area. And if this was on the actual exam, they would definitely give you that yeah. somewhere. It would, might be in the front of the exam, might be in the question somewhere, but that, that formula would yep. definitely be there. So now we're going to basically finish filling in the equation. So again, I told you that this was a constant and we know P, we know that that is one kip. And then we can figure out the area of a two by 12. You've got to go back to thinking about what the so dimensions are. So here's the but... whole important thing to remember. Uh, this is one of those things that used to get drilled into every architecture student uh, in the country, but I know has sort of slipped by a lot of folks these days. Um, a two by 12 is, uh, it's nominally, it's named a two by 12, but it's not two by 12. It is in fact one and a half by 11 and a quarter inches. So a one and a half by 11 and a quarter is what a two by 12 is. If we were talking about a two by four or a two by six, it would be one and a half by three and a half or one and a half by th uh, five and a half. But the eights, tens and twelves all go to the quarter. So uh, a two by eight is one and a half by seven and a quarter. Two by ten is one and a half by uh, nine and a quarter. And in this case, the two by twelve is one and a half by eleven and a quarter. Mm -hmm. Like that's one of those things you just got to memorize them because uh, yeah. it'll show up in lots of places. Yep. So we know that our allowable shear stress is this 180, but I wrote the load down as one kip. So we do have to multiply by that thousand pounds per kip to get our answer. When you do the math here, you get 89 PSI. And when you compare it to the 180, you are actually under. So the two by 12s actually have enough shear capacity. So look, there you go. All right. Let's jump on to the next question. Okay, here's a question about columns. And this is sort of a, a general question. This is this one is just saying, all right, the current design uh, development, uh, the current DD set, the current design development design calls for a 10 foot tall W10 by 33 column in a building that you are working on. Uh, and the question is, what are the most important elements for understanding what the maximum allowable load would be for that? So imagine you sort of have an assumption, you put it into place, and now you're trying to like, well, okay, what things do, what are the, what are the issues that would be at play here? So uh, we've started with a couple little uh, sketch images there mm -hmm. to help us along. Uh, what, uh, what would you say the, the basic worries here would be? Well, the first thing you want to think about is what is the contribution to figuring out the capacity of a column. And so you are really thinking about, is it tall and slender? Is it short and squatty? And you may have heard this little equation here, KL over R. And so the different parts of this actually are what are the most important pieces to be thinking about. K goes up here to these diagrams. It basically is having you think about what are my end conditions. This first one shows a pin pin. The second one is a flagpole kind of condition, so it has a fixed base. And then the third one shows you two fixed ends. Um, and, and, and so because that the two fixed ends, it means that they're as they come out of the fix, fixity, they're coming out at 90 degrees. Correct. Unlike the pin, which can, can rotate around. Mm -hmm. And yep. so you get a very yeah. different uh, curving happening. Right. So the value changes as you go through these. I happen to know that this... Pin pin is a 1.0, and I believe That's the cantilever a, is a 2.0. Yeah. This one I have no idea off the top it's, of my head. Yeah, we'd have to look it up. But you can see how they change, and so depending on what fixity you have. And if we look at our little uh, our little diagram, what fixity do you think we have? 
Yeah, that's that looks like a pin pin. Yeah, those are that's sketched as a pin. It's not the best sketch ever. Sorry about that. But that's uh that's meant to be a pin pin uh, connection. So that's definitely the K's mm-hmm. uh, 1.0 on that. Yep. So then the other, uh, the next piece is L, and that's your height over here. So that certainly is going to contribute. So if you're shorter or taller, that makes your number here bigger. And basically to have a good capacity for a column, the lower the scale over R value is, the more capacity you'll have in your column. Right. So like one of the ways to, to think about this, that one of the big advantages of thinking of the KL over R is um, the, the big question on a column when you're doing calculations on a column, there's a couple different ways that a column can fail. Uh, one of the ways a column can fail is through buckling. And one of the ways a column can fail is just that the material fails, like, mm-hmm. you know, steel or concrete or whatever it is, just it has so much load on it that it just fails. And so, uh, but then which ones are which and which, which times do you need to use the formulas for buckling and which times do you need to use the formulas for, for uh, the, the capacity of the material, the robustness of the, of the material itself. And so if you start thinking about it, if you just sort of exaggerate it in your head, if instead of that being a 10 foot column, if you said, all right, what if that's a 100 foot tall column? Well, if that's a 100 foot tall column and we're putting any load on it, are you ever going to put a load on it in such a way that you're going to crush the steel? Probably not. It's You're going to buckle that right. column way before mm-hmm. you're going to crush anything. All right. Well, on the converse side, let's say instead of being 10 foot tall, it was one foot tall and we put a whole big load on it. Really, you're going to buckle a one foot tall steel column like it's it, you're never going to buckle that. But it might, if you put enough load on it, crush the steel or, you know, rip through it. Rip yeah. through it. Um, so clearly there are a bunch of uh, situations where you are going to focus on the uh, the material issues. And there's a bunch of situations where you're going to focus on the buckling issues. And then there's some in the middle where you probably have to do calculations for both Mm -hmm. because that's, you know, it could be either it's not clearly one or the other. So it's kind of a triage system. You're kind of breaking it into the triage. And that's one of the things that the whole KL over R starts to help you sort of think through is get it kind of getting you to the spot where you're deciding which of those formulas. Mm -hmm. So that means that what we're trying to figure out here is, well, we need to know, uh, like how tall it is, what mm-hmm. kind of uh, connections there are, in this case, the pin connections. And therefore, that's going to lead us to uh, how that KL over R is going to work. And then uh, the other thing we uh, would want to know would be more about the W10 by 33. But uh, we can look that information up. And in this case, that's the R, that radius of Right. Gyration. Yeah. So if you go to a bigger W10, the R value is going to go up. So that'll help bring the KL over R value down and give you more capacity, like we were saying. Right. So the big issues, the uh, height, uh, the the connections, in this case, the pin connections, and then the sort of, uh, um, I don't know how to say it other than robustness of the shape, yeah. the, the kind of what that R, what that's telling us. Mm-hmm. Um, let's take a quick look and just see what... Uh, what are polars our, from home, how they did? Yeah. So, okay... Let's see. So he's saying tributary area and radius of gyration. So tributary area is not a bad thing. What that's saying is uh, that the the area that is going to contribute load to that that column would be a significant thing I'd want to really think about. So mm-hmm. that's kind of getting into the loading of the area right. and how right. much versus load per square foot itself. we probably have mm-hmm. versus the shape itself. So I think that's a reasonable um, answer as well. Uh, and then obviously radius of gyration we just we just mentioned. Yep. Um, I, I would also include though that I think that the pin connection is really key. Um, and then obviously we have, we've given it as the length. 
the 10 foot, but I think it's worth mentioning it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's jump back into our, uh, our issues here. Okay, so we're on nine, and nine says, does the wood three by six beam work for deflection with the loading shown? And then it says the E, uh, which is the modulus of elasticity, for Doug Fur is 1,900,000, and then it gives the moment of inertia um, for the three by six as 34.66 inches to the fourth. Yeah. So this is fun stuff. There you go. This is this is an exciting <laughs> one. Uh, so, so check out that uh, that formula yep, over there. Yeah. So here is your deflection formula. It's five WL to the fourth over three eighty four EI. And I know it looks like it's a little crazy, but it, it's not too bad. We can plug everything in and take a look at what the result is. So the five and the three eighty four are constants. That's just part of the equation. But we're going to fill in the rest of it. W is five hundred pounds per foot. And then L is 15 feet, and it's to the fourth. And then we're all over the 384 and the 19 million. And what wasn't told is that's actually in PSI, so that's pound per inch squared. And then we were given I, which is the 34.66 inches to the fourth. Okay, so this formula is notorious for having units issues. So you can kind of see the top is all in feet, but the bottom is all in inches. So we've got to do some conversions here. So uh, if you go back to the days of doing ratio, you know, thinking about your fractions, we're just going to start crossing off what cancels each other out. So the pounds cancel each other out. This inch to the squared on the bottom is going to cancel two of the fours over here. This foot on the bottom is going to cancel one of the feet there. So you get feet cubed over inches squared. And we know that the answer is going to be in inches. So we need to convert this baby right here. We're going to convert that feet cubed to inches. So we know that we have 12 inches per foot. And it is going to be cubed so that we get these feet to take these feet away. So we get inches cubed over inches squared, which in the end will give you inches. So when you do the math, you will get 8.64 inches, which is not a lovely number. So let's think about that for a second. This is a 15-foot uh, beam, a three uh, three by six wood beam that's 15 feet long, and its deflection is 8.64. That's almost nine inches. Mm-hmm. That's way too much I'm deflection. I'm not going in your house if that's yeah, that's, that's 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 that. that is my house, actually. That's, that's about the same deflection in my house. Um, uh, clearly, if you had, uh, you know, drywall and plaster would be cracking and breaking. And if you had bricks or something on top of that beam, it would, uh, all the mortar would be broken. Like that's just way too much. So maybe there's a, what would be a typical relationship that we would try sure. to get? So we use two different ones. There's one that's L over 240. And then there's another one L over 360. This one here is usually used for total load. So you're dead plus live. And then this one over here is usually used as for live only. Those are our kind of rules of thumb. There are times where we will use other values. You know, for masonry, we use something different. But these are your pretty typical ones. Yeah, so these are the numbers you'll see. If you if you see it on the exam, it's going to be probably one of these two. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll, it'll tell you either for the total load or for the live load um, and then give you one of those numbers. But what that's essentially saying is that to- the total length, you divide it by 240 um, uh, and... Uh, that 
the the number that comes from that is the the sort of allowable deflection that you're you, that you're going to be able to mm-hmm. um, to go for before it's going to start to crack and you yeah. Know, and do and other when problems. you when you actually do figure out the L over two forty, it's only three quarters of an inch. Right, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. Like you know, three quarters of an inch is still a fair amount of deflection. Mm-hmm. But, you know, things have to move a little bit. If you have a big, big load on something, it's going to deflect a little. And that's, you know, the materials are built to be able to take that. They just can't take something like 8.6 inch deflect. That's just way too much. But if it, if that number had come out to, say, half an inch or five eighths of yeah, an inch or something, fine. it'd be fine. Even if it came out right to three quarters, it'd still be fine. Um, but then there are some very specific situations where you could imagine a question where it's much more higher tolerant. Um, be, uh, because there's a very particular need, um, like the masonry or something, mm-hmm. but, um, the vast majority of them are going to be either this L240 for the total load or L over 360 for the live load. Correct. Yep. So yeah, knowing that we have so much deflection, the, the easiest ways to change those is to figure out what's in that denominator and make those bigger. Do you have a question about, uh, could you uh, review how you did the units again, how you converted the Oh, yeah. So, so the question about the units. Yeah. So basically when I did the units, I wrote them out all longhand so that I could see what I had in each fraction, if you will. And then I just started using the rule of fractions where if it's in the top, you're going to multiply by one over to, to get it to cross out. And so I was just trying to cross out the different pieces. And so you're doing that both fractions that are within the numerator as well as the the, the, but as well as then also between the numerator and the denominator so it's it's happening at both levels within the formula and also the overall formula. yes that's very true um yeah that's one of those things you do it a few times and it'll you'll get reminded of it but it's a it's a tricky yeah it takes takes a while to get get used to that um and this is one of those ones that is uh, always uh problematic for I mean, like if you're going to have mm-hmm. trouble on units, it's going to be in a deflection one because yeah. it's just sort of a nature of it. But before we move on, let's take a quick second, just sort of talk about um, this this formula a little bit. Like w- this thing can seem um, very, very complicated and they may ask you to, to do a full uh, calculation out. But it's also possible that they may ask a question that you can actually answer just from understanding the the issue here. So let's say, for example, we just figured out that that this particular example just is, is way uh, is just not strong enough to, to handle mm-hmm. um, and it's going to have way too much deflection. So what could we do to fix this problem? Sure. So there's a couple different things we could do. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking at that formula. Uh, uh, you know, any one of those numbers, the, the five and the three eighty four, all got to all got to stay because yeah, those those are those. those are constants. But we could mess with the W, we could mess with the L, we could mess with the E, we could mess with the I. So uh, let's start with the E. Um, like what could we do? Uh, we could go to a different material that had sure could. a uh, different uh, modulus of elasticity. Yeah, steel is going to be much stronger than that. So if we went for, to a steel um, in, in place of this wood, that the modulus of elasticity for that is going to be significantly higher, mm-hmm. which means that that denominator is going to be higher, which means that the deflection, that the, the overall fraction is going to be much smaller. Yep. So going to steel would be one way to think about this. We could also, the three by six is a sort of reasonable shape, but uh, with 
the eye, we could also go with a just maybe a much deeper yeah. section. Like maybe it's still wood, but maybe it's a, know, a four by 12 or, right. or something like that. So yeah. it has a much deeper element. And then that eye is going to be much larger. And then again, the mm -hmm. denominator is going to be larger and therefore the overall fraction is going to be smaller. So you're bringing down the deflection amount. And um, same thing goes with the W and with the L. They... You know, we could say, well, okay, this is all fine, but you just can't load it to 500. You got to find some way to bring that W down, which I don't know how you do that, but that's a that's a way you could think about it. Um, but the other way to think about it is maybe the L is wrong. Like maybe there has to be a column halfway in between. And so you're actually, instead of being 15 feet, it's seven and a half feet or right. something like that. Right. So very quickly, just once you understand what those letters are standing for, you can actually answer a lot of questions that would be about, well, what would you do if this was the case? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. yep. All right. Let's take a quick look at what our, our friends at home friends at home with our respondee said. So this one, uh, we look at number nine here and we see that the, um, got the L240, mm -hmm. uh, that looks good. So I figured out the seven, uh, 0.75 inches, the three quarters of an inch. Yeah. Uh, and that first run five over 384. So everything in that first line looks pretty good, but came out with a different number. Yeah. So we, we think there might just be a, a, a bit of a, Maybe a calculator error. I, I know my fingers get fat sometimes and I punch the wrong button. Yeah. So I'm not exactly sure what happened there, but the, but everything, all the setup looks right. But then uh, something's not quite right in the final follow through. It might be, a, maybe it's a units thing, um, but uh, I think it's probably just a calculator error. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's, uh, let's jump back and we'll go on to our last one here. All right. So this is uh, for number 10. For the belled caisson with the soil boring report shown, calculate the axial loading bearing capacity for this foundation element. Assume the topsoil is organic material and provides no bearing capacity. So we have here a belled caisson shown in section, and then the bearing capacity of the soils, all the different levels of the soils from the soils boring report that starts off in the top level has topsoil and there's some silty sand that has a 1200 PSF uh, capacity. Then we have sandy gravel, which has 2200. PSF down below that. Then there's a mix, couple of mixed ones, uh, gravels and sands and silts and such at 2,900 and 3,200. And then down there's bedrock and at the at the bottom there at 10,000 PSF. So uh, which of those numbers are we going to really care about? Well, I don't know about anybody else, but if I'm going to put a case on in, I want a nice big number. So I like the bottom one. Yeah, essentially, this is total red herring. All of this extra information, the only one you care about is that 10,000 PSF down at the bottom. Uh, all of those other silty sands and all that stuff uh, might be useful for a different foundation system if you were doing a raft or uh, spread footing mm -hmm. somewhere higher up. But the entire point of a belled caisson is you're reaching way down to get to some very good soil, yep. hopefully bedrock, although not always. Um, right. Uh, and then you're going to bell it out. You make that shape at the bottom where it's so it's a, a column of one size for most of it. But then when it gets down to the very bottom, it gets wider. And the whole point of that is just to get more bearing area down at the very bottom. So you're not having to do a full eight foot column all the way up. And that'd be a huge amount of concrete. And so you do the four foot column. In this case, it's four foot, it's lots of different sizes. Uh, and then bells out to the eight foot down at the bottom. So the question then is, all right, I've got the 10,000 PSF and I've got uh, an eight foot uh, bell down at the bottom. What's my capacity? 
Yep. So your question might be a little confusing because it does <laughs> have the word bearing capacity in there. So some people may think that it's this 10,000, but it's actually wanting to know how much axial you can put down the thing. So if you remember from a previous problem, we know that pressure equals P over A, and we're actually going to solve for P. So we want to take that 10,000, and it's, let's see, it was PSF, I think, is what you're giving everything yep. in. So we know it's 10,000 PSF times the area, and so it's the area of that circle down here at the bottom, down here, we want the area of that. So uh, I'm going to write it out in terms of diameter, but it is pi r squared. I tend to think in terms of uh, diameter too much today. So uh, that's how to convert it to, so it's... <laughs> I totally would have done a pi r squared, but okay, yeah, <laughs> we, right, we got you. So the so, 8 over uh, yeah. 4 is... So when the, you do the math, let's see, where's my cheat sheet here. Uh, when you do the math, you get 500, and, you can write it as 502,000, you can write it as 502 kips. Um, so, so that's the answer. The answer there um, is that's what the total capacity for that size of a belt case on, on that uh, capacity of bedrock with the 10,000 PSF, that's what that's going to tell you. So uh, you're doing the, the area and then the, the um, the uh, capacity of the soil, and that's telling us what the potential uh, P is—the potential total load that would be we'd be able to design for uh, for whatever this building is. Yep. Um, and this is the kind of thing you have to be very careful of. That just because they give you a lot of information doesn't mean it's pertinent. Uh, so this would be one of those examples where uh, a lot of uh, red herring information. Mm -hmm. Do we have any questions in the? Yeah, uh, there's a question here. It's about. Um just in general, uh, you know, uh, with the structures exam, there's lots of, are there going to be a bunch of problems? Is it going to be, um, you know, just a few? Like, can you sort of talk about uh, how the structures exam kind of lays out? Yeah, so the question is just about the overall, uh, how, the, how the questions work overall. And one of the things you'll find when you take the exam is uh, the calculating questions will loom large in your head because they're just sort of out of your normal um, they're not what you typically do in the day. Uh, but in actuality, there's probably only a relatively small percentage of ones that you actually have to do a lot of calculation on. Um, remember, you have to move through these things pretty fast. So the calculations have to be fairly straightforward and simple. Uh, you have to be able to do a question in maybe uh, less than a minute, certainly. Um, so Anything that, that seems like it would take much longer than a minute probably isn't likely. You're probably going down the wrong path. Um, and it, there's probably some way to answer it without actually doing the calculations. Many more of the questions, a much higher percentage of questions, will be on things like um, like the seismic question that we talked about, something like that, mm -hmm. where it's sort of a general understanding of how things move in a seismic situation. Um, or it might be in a sort of efficiency question about, uh, you know, what would make the most sense uh, in a given uh, situation? Would it make more sense? Like, let's say there's a um, a very detailed uh, manufacturing place that's, that's, you know, it's like an iPhone manufacturing something, you know, where they're, they're doing very specific and detailed manufacturing and they don't want a lot of vibration. Well, what kind of, uh, structural system would you suggest for that? And, you know, you could think, well, wood, no, probably not wood, you know, steel, 
Well, steel is awesome, but it vibrates a lot. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, which is one of the great things about steel is it has a lot of ductility, but that may not be the right choice right. there. So maybe if it was something like that, it's probably concrete, some sort of uh, mm-hmm. uh, concrete thing. That's a kind of question that's very, very typical of the sorts of questions you'd get on the exam because it's about uh, your, the, the, the whole point is just trying to check can you have a reasonable conversation with a structural engineer uh, that, you know, will you be able to understand what they're telling you? Will you be able to uh, uh, kind of go through the information and make kind of rational decisions, but also not get uh, pushed around by a structural engineer, you know, so. Pushy? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, so that, uh, you know, a question might come up and then the structural engineer has like the way that they've done it before. Well, that may not be the appropriate thing for your project. So it's just trying to check to make sure, can you actually have a reasonable conversation with a structural engineer? And so most of the questions are going to be focused on kind of those sorts of basic conceptual understandings. And then a good, you know, I don't know, 10% of them will be very simple uh, calculations. And then maybe another 10 or 20% will be a little more complicated calculations um, that you have to actually kind of spend some energy on. Um, but it's one of those things where, like I said, if it's taking you longer than a minute to to answer the question, I eh, probably just move on. Doesn't you know, like you're there's there's no advantage to you to spend five five ten minutes uh, answering a single question. Uh, the other question we have is, uh, will the answers uh, to all these questions in the in the work that you did, Heather, will that all be made available? No, it's top secret. It's all top secret. Yeah, yeah. You better have taken notes. Um, no, we will be uh, making available all the uh, the um, calculations that uh, that uh, Heather just went through. Um, so you'll have access to that uh, um, on the site somehow. I'm sure Mark will make that available to you. Um, but uh, yeah, so absolutely. And you can also, of course, uh, look back through the video and sort of watch it uh, watch it live again. All right. So. Thank you, Mike and Heather, and thanks to all of you who've tuned in. If you'd like to attend our next ARE Live broadcast, visit blackspectacles.com podcast to register to attend. You'll have a chance to ask questions and share your answers for live feedback during that broadcast. Um, and to learn more about our AIA ARE prep curriculum, you can go to blackspectacles.com. Uh, we'll also put a, sh- a link in the show notes. Uh, and for those of you who are ready and want to get busy preparing for the ARE, you can use a 15% coupon off, the, off of every one of your charges of your AIA ARE prep membership. Uh, and you can retrieve that coupon code by visiting aia.org slash ARE prep. And that's ARE prep is one sort of, uh, sort of word there. And finally, please hop over to iTunes right now and rate our podcast to let us know what you think and share any suggestions that you may have. I promise we'll read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for listening. 